Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. As you might have been hearing on recent podcasts, I've been training in solution-focused therapy slash coaching recently. I've been finding it pretty transformational, both for me personally, but also I found it really useful in work too. It's a very postmodern practice in that it just works. In the training that I've attended, the trainers have been disinterested in the theory or why it works. Their response is that it does, and here's how we do it. That's good enough for me. I really enjoyed getting cracking on with it and trying it out on lots of my loved ones before doing coaching with paying clients. However, I've got a podcast to run and a blog to write, and I need that content. So what is the deal with solution-focused therapy, and what's the theory behind it? The pioneers of solution-focused brief therapy were Insu Kimberg and Steve DeShazer. It came out of observing thousands of hours of therapy sessions, paying attention to the exception in a client's life when their presenting problem wasn't a problem. So, for example, when the insomniac did have nights where they could sleep, or the depressed person did feel like they could get out of bed and have a normal day. That kind of thing. It didn't come from any grand theoretical model, but the ideas of Wittgenstein interested Steve DeShazer. Ludwig Wittgenstein, for many the most important philosopher of the 20th century, was a pretty unique guy. He had no background in philosophy and showed little interest in reading Aristotle, Descartes, Leibniz, etc. Yet, under the tutelage of Bertrand Russell, he became one of the leading thinkers of the modern age. He saw philosophy not as a doctrine or an academic subject, or even a profession, but as an activity in problem-solving. Right from his earliest work, he saw that thinking, or expressing thoughts, was basically overrated. Instead, it was better not to think of answering our problems, but instead to understand that philosophical problems were just confusions of language. Difficult questions such as, what is thought, or being, were constructed based on a misunderstanding of the logic of language, and also not using language in the everyday way that it is used. So, one of his biographers... Uh, Stroll says, the tradition of philosophical inquiry sees the ordinary person as confused and in need of philosophical therapy. Socrates is the paradigmatic philosopher on this view. He walks around Athens, questioning his fellow citizens, and quickly exposed the shallowness and inconsistencies of the thinking about fundamental issues. For Wittgenstein, the emphasis is in the other direction. It is philosophers like Socrates and his successors who tend to cast up a dust and then complain they cannot see, and who need help. Wittgenstein also said that philosophical propositions were nonsense, including his own propositions. In the Tractatus, his first and only book published in his lifetime, Wittgenstein said, My propositions serve as elucidations in the following way. Anyone who understands me eventually recognises them as nonsensical. When he has used them, as steps, to climb up beyond them, he must, so to speak, throw away the ladder asked after he has climbed up it. He must transcend these propositions, and then he'll see the world aright. As you can see, his original proposition was, this proposition will self-destruct, like Mission Impossible, uh, one of my favourite films. In understanding that philosophical propositions were nonsense, he was also seeking to destroy philosophy. He gave up being a philosopher for some years after his first book. After all, he had destroyed it with his book. When he returned to lecturing, he came to a different notion, just based on seeing things differently. 
Another quote from him, A main source of our failure to understand is that we do not command a clear view of the use of our words. Our grammar is lacking in this sort of perspicuity. Perspicuity. (laughs) A perspicuous representation produces just, just that understanding which consists in seeing connections. Instead of thinking, who would encourage students or readers to look? Don't think, but look, is one of his very many famous catchphrases. In one of his lectures, he said that the job of philosophy should be more akin to a geographer than a geologist. Instead of digging down under the surface of a hill or a structure, we should instead try to map the terrain around something, to, to see and to be able to describe how to get around and what else we can do when we do so. Another quote from his, What I give you is the morphology of the use of an expression. I'll show that it has kinds of uses which you have not dreamed in, of which you had not dreamed. In philosophy, one feels forced to look at a concept in a certain way. What I do is suggest, or even invent, other ways of looking at it. I suggest possibilities of which you had not previously thought. You thought there was one possibility, or only two at most, but I made you think of others. Furthermore, I made you see that it was absurd to expect the concept to conform to those narrow possibilities. Thus, your mental cramp is relieved, and you are free to look around the field of the use of expression and to describe the different kinds of uses of it. Or, in another one of his famous sayings, to show the fly the way out of a bottle that it flew into. We can see how useful this kind of philosophy, in inverted commas, might be in our own lives. In fact, Wittgenstein was a big fan of therapy, and explicitly talked about the therapeutic nature of his ideas. He was a fan of Freud for bringing us this method of working, though not a fan of uh, Freud's way of insisting that psychoanalysis being a generalisable doctrine. Wittgenstein wasn't really a fan of making philosophy like a science, which is one of the big tussles that he had with, with Bertrand Russell. This expansive way of looking and describing is exactly what the solution-focused approach is about. This is not to say that problems don't exist. Problems which cause distress are often very much material, so money, housing, being disabled by society, interlocking, oppressions, etc. However, our way of tackling more discursive problems, how we feel about ourselves, how confident we are, how we overcome challenges, are often, about, are often about getting to the root of the problem, being a geologist, not a geographer. In this way, we might risk, risk exacerbating problems or making them seem insurmountable, or giving them, and us, an essentialist and fixed status. Side note, there are some interesting overlaps here with the ideas around post-capitalism and how we should adjust the stories of capitalism, actually. Maybe more on this another time, but there's a really great book by Gibson Graham that I'll have in the show notes uh, that you might find interesting. Wittgenstein talks about this when he introduces the idea of language games. Words don't have an essential set of meanings that can be generalisable. In order for someone to take a note saying five red apples to a greengrocer, we make a set of assumptions that they can that the greengrocer can count to five, know what red is, or has access to a colour chart that he could compare the apples to, and also that he have some apples. A noun can also be a command, such as the builder calling to their mate, block, pillar, slab, beam. 
languages are also or languages are made use of in our everyday lives. So think of the different language games in, and again I'm quoting from Wittgenstein here, think of the different language games in, giving orders and obeying them, describing the appearance of an object or giving its measurements, constructing an, obje an object from a description, a drawing, reporting an event, speculating about an event, forming and testing an hypothesis, presenting the results of an experiment in tables and diagrams, making up a story and reading it, play-acting, singing catches, guessing riddles, making a joke, telling it, solving a problem in practical arithmetic, translating from one language to another, asking, thanking, cursing, greeting, praying, See also his argument or notion that there is no such thing as a private language, that as individuals we don't have a private undecipherable language to describe our sensations or feelings. So to say that we are sad or angry or joyful or worried or ashamed, in pain, orgasmic, comfy, excited, is to rely on these words having an everyday meaning which can be understood and observed by a third party. Feelings and sensations don't carry with them an essential meaning that makes us the essential individual human. As I've been talking about a lot on recent podcasts, we could also bring in Deleuze and Guattari's idea of assemblages here. Instead of things happening in three distinct categories of mind, body, language, and that mind also, side note, also the, and also the idea that mind is like top of a hierarchy that, that can control both of those things, which is uh, uh, Cartesian, like De the idea from Descartes. So instead of th things happening in three distinct categories of mind-body language, we can see that there is a complex blend of all three happening. It's biopsychosocial. But even more than a feeling or a sensation is affect, the result, and that results of being affected by something. That affect is part of this dynamic and ever-changing affective flow, involving an assemblage of moving parts. So just to give an example of this, to make this really clear, for example, feeling worried, which I am at the moment. So what is in my affective flow? What's in my assemblage? Material circumstances, a cramp in my stomach, Twitter, my personal history of precarity, uh, is what I'm working on right now making any sense or any difference? Uh, the Tory party leadership contest, what my loved ones are saying about their lives generally, work, how much pints cost, the temperature, how much sleep I can get, but also knowing that worry is a useful feeling. My feeling of being worried is definitely there, as are the causes of me feeling worried, but the feeling doesn't just belong to me. It isn't caused by one thing, and so sometimes I'm also I'm going to be able to be worried more or less, because the me in that is also a porous, affective flow of things. My fundamental existence isn't a private one, and it's in this constant flowing, interactive assemblage. Are you following us? Yeah, of course you are. Uh, and here's a quote from uh, Meredith Williams, who wrote Wittgenstein, Mind and Meaning Towards a Social Conception of Mind. Such mental process accounts draw on certain misconceived propositions, such as sensations are private, acts of imagination are voluntary, people act on their intentions and beliefs and so on. 
The propositions are misconceived, according to Wittgenstein, because they are taken as empirical claims describing the interior states and causes of behaviour. In fact, their status as grammatical propositions reveals them to be norms of our psychological language games. They are propositions like, the bishop, is in, the bishop in a game of chess moves diagonally. This proposition expresses a rule of the game, not an empirical claim about how bishop-shaped figurines move in the world. Sometimes they roll off the table. Does that all make sense? So it's this idea that these I- these ideas of um, so any so lang- so language, discourse, feelings, thoughts, sensations are all held within language games, which we all understand existing in our common everyday lives in our use of language. And also, there is no such thing as a private language. All these things exist in some way socially. In some way, we that in they exist in interaction with other people or interaction with other people. So that's all the theory, but back to solution-focused practice. In these very structured and focused conversations in solution-focused practice, the basic framework goes like this. Where to? How will you know you've arrived? How far have you come already? What's better? So it's not about spending a great deal of time or any time thinking or talking about the problem, where it comes from or what's the cause. Typically at the beginning of a session, we might talk about the problem a little bit just in order to establish kind of empathy with the client. If they're going through something really rubbish, we're not going to just say, okay, well, tell me about your best hopes. But, you know, but we spend more time, we spend less time thinking about that and more time thinking about solutions. The approach is to get someone to say about what their best hopes might be and what that might look like. It's about being a geographer and not a geologist. Solution focus is all about descriptions, vivid descriptions, and how things might look in the real world using everyday language. So you can see there's huge amounts of overlap with what we've been talking about with Wittgenstein already and the theory of this and the, where this might come from. Crucially, it involves describing and looking from lots of different perspectives, including those of the people around you. What would you notice? What would they notice? How would you respond? How would they respond? And again, there's no like concrete grand theory for how this works, it just does. But I'm guessing that it is about this deprivatizing the problem and thus allowing for solutions to become, because solutions and problems are both not existing in this kind of private world, they're existing in this interactive flow between people. This, they're existing in an assemblage. So it's about tapping into those and paying attention to those rather than paying attention to that which we think is solid and fixed and private. So let's end this with a solution-focused exercise that you can try out for yourself, dear listener. So let's do one about, let's let's imagine that you uh, want to have a better relationship with yourself, okay? Uh, on a scale of zero to 10, where 10 is the best my relationship with myself could ever possibly be, and zero is the opposite, where are you at the moment? So I'll just repeat that. On a scale of naught to 10, where 10 is the best my relationship with myself could ever possibly be, and zero is the opposite, where are you at the moment? What puts you as high as that number? For example, if you're at a six, why not a five? 
So again, what puts you as high as that number? For example, if you're at a six, why aren't you at a five? How have you managed to be at that number? How have you managed to be at a six and not a five? Or a three and not a two? How have you managed that? What does it say about you? What does it say about you that you're at a seven and not a six? Can you think of some qualities you have or evidence that puts you at that number and not lower? Make a list. Can you get to 10? Once you get to 10, can you get to 20? Can you get to 50? What next? What else? Who sees these qualities in you? What might they say to you? What else puts you as high as that number? Now, we can't always feel great about ourselves because of the culture we're in and how some people get more freedom to be themselves than others in society uh, because of interlocking oppressions, uh, wealth inequalities, etc. But realistically, where would you like it to be? Realistically, what number would you like to be on that scale on an everyday basis? And now, if you can get that number to just one number higher on that scale, so you can go from a four to a five, what might you start to notice? What might you start to notice if you can go from a four to a five or a six to a seven? Try and imagine a time or place in the next few days where you can tell that things are a tiny bit better. What might you notice? Who else might see it and what would they see? If at the beginning of this, when I was asking you about the, what number to put yourself on a scale, if you said zero, that must be really, really tough. And I'm sorry, but you're here, you're listening to this. So that's something. It shows that you've got some qualities that help you cope. How come you're not at a minus one? How have you managed to deal with this so far? Maybe rewind a bit and have a go at those questions. So if you're interested in booking a session with me, patrons of the of Culture Sex Relationships, patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships can get a 10% discount. Check out my coaching page at justinhancock.co.uk. If you want to have a session with someone who isn't me, I can recommend Bieber. I'll put the link in the show notes. I've had some sessions with her. She's really great. And if you're interested in getting some training yourself, I'd recommend the courses at Brief, which is where I've been training. That's brief.org.uk. Um, cool. Thank you so much for listening. Again, uh, if you are a patron, thank you so much for supporting the show. You're making a show possible. Um, you can send in your questions to me if you have anything you'd like me to cover on the podcast. If you're not a patron, please consider supporting the patron. Just a quid a month would help me keep the show on the road. Uh, pay me and also um, pay any freelance guests to come on the show uh, to help make more of this hashtag content. And um, Right, I hope you found that useful. Ciao for now. Bye.